0: You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit truegreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed.
1: CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pugez.
2: Good day and welcome to America Changed Forever. This week we could focus on what's happening in Ukraine or the latest on the pandemic. There is so much to discuss on so many fronts, but one story that I think has gotten lost in all of the news from this past week is what's happening with the Supreme Court, how it is operating using something called the shadow docket, also its decision in a recent voting rights case in Alabama, or there's also President Biden's upcoming pick for the Supreme Court. Remember, there's going to be a vacancy on the court, and the president will make his pick in the coming weeks. And he is likely feeling the pressure. Of course, he'll never admit that. And so the clock is ticking on when that pick will be announced. Joining us now to discuss who's still in the running and who has bipartisan support, Dan Casino, professor of government and law at Fairleigh Dickinson University. Dan, thanks for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. All right. So how close do you think the president is to naming his choice?
0: Well, look, President Biden is in no hurry. Remember, we are not getting the actual retirement for some time. So he's got uh, quite a bit of time to actually make this choice. And he hasn't shown that he's really interested in moving forward very quickly. I think what he really wants to do is push the decision back, Uh, until he gets to the point where he thinks everybody uh, is on board with this pick. What he really doesn't want to do is have a long, drawn-out, very controversial pick. So what he's going to do is really talk to the Senate, deal with Democratic senators, and make sure that whoever he picks has the unanimous support of Democrats in the Senate to make sure this is going to go through with 50 votes, uh, and he won't get hung up by the Democrats. So who do you think stands out at this point as the front runner. Oh, boy. So at this point, I think the front runner is probably a U.S. Circuit circuit Court Judge named uh, Katanji Brown Jackson. So Jackson is uh, – 51 years old. Uh, She was first nominated by Barack Obama, and she was recently elevated by Joe Biden during the Biden administration to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. Uh, That's the court that's normally seen as an entryway into the Supreme Court. The fact that she's already been approved by the Senate very, very recently also makes it a lot more likely that she is going to be approved by the Senate because the Senate would have to justify why she was fine a few minutes ago and isn't fine now. The other two judges that most speculation is centering on are a U.S. District Judge uh, named J. Michelle Childs and a California Supreme Court Judge named Leandra Kruger. Uh, The California State Supreme Court Judge would actually be really interesting because almost all of the judges we get to the Supreme Court now are coming from the federal bench. So getting someone from the state bench would actually be a sign of diversity. Now, we are, of course, all talking about African American women, uh, being the frontrunners as President Biden has pledged to nominate an African American woman. But we should note there are still problems with diversity here in terms of where these people come from. The vast majority of people that are being, being considered for the bench are people who are still, you know, law school graduates from Harvard and Yale. And so we're not getting a lot of diversity in that respect. All right, let's
2: let's let's focus in on Kruger for right now. She She's considered a centrist judge on the California Supreme Court. That's right. So she is, as I
0: said, a graduate of Harvard and Yale. Uh, she did previously clerk at the Supreme Court, and she has actually argued at the Supreme Court uh, many times. So I think more than a dozen times at this point, she's made cases at the Supreme Court. So she is known to the court, and that's generally considered to be a good idea to nominate someone who has familiarity with the way the court works. They could you know, move in very, very easily. Uh, she's considered to be a centrist pick. That does mean that there might be some difficulty from the left wing of the Democratic Party that might want someone who is a little more strident on their side. Essentially, their argument is that President Trump uh, certainly didn't you know, worry about trying to get centrist picks, he got the most conservative picks he could. And if Joe Biden wants to win the court back, he should be doing the same thing, getting the most liberal person he possibly can. So Joe Biden also doesn't want too much of a fight over this. And so he might be interested to go uh, with a centrist judge.
2: All right. and, And if he doesn't want too much of a fight on this, what about what Lindsey Graham, Republican from South Carolina is saying about? Uh, Michelle Childs. Uh, He believes that Childs is a candidate who can win the most Republican votes. So isn't that an important consideration for this president? Well, it certainly means
0: it's going to be bipartisan. And that's something Joe Biden in the past has been very worried about, trying to make it look like he is winning over votes from both sides rather than just pushing through on a Democratic agenda. Now, that approach so far has not worked. The mere fact that he's nominating someone means he's going to get a lot of pushback. So it's not clear that he actually will be able to get a lot of votes, almost regardless of who he puts forward. There's going to be Republicans in the Senate who are going to push back and say whoever he picks is an extremist. In fact, I got an email from the RNC today saying that saying that Biden's Supreme Court pick was a liberal extremist. We don't even know who the pick is yet, so. I'm not sure he's going to be able to win that many votes over no matter what. Uh, the question is whether he wants to try to look like a centrist, to act like a centrist, or if he really does want to shore up the left wing of the party and almost create a fight, perhaps, in order to energize the
2: Democratic base. Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, saying that President Biden's Supreme Court selection won't be influenced by lawmakers or other groups lobbying for a, a particular candidate. Should we really believe that? I mean, obviously, there is a lot of pressure coming from all sides on this president right now as it relates to the pick. I think it would be bizarre to imagine a president is
0: not going to be influenced at all by the composition of the Senate or by members of the Senate in who their pick is. Of course, any president is going to want to consult with those senators. Now, I think what – the president and the executive branch is saying with that is we are the ones who decide who the pick is and we're not going to be bullied. And there's no point in trying to tell us who you want because we're going to make our own pick on our own terms. That said, that pick is going to be constrained by what they can actually pass through the Senate. And if they can't pass it through, it doesn't really matter who they want
2: when i look at the court and obviously i cover justice and homeland security for the most part law enforcement issues i don't really cover the court that much for cbs news but when i look at the makeup of this court and some of the decisions that have come down recently you know i can see why there are people out there who think that president former president trump's picks have this Uh, outsized influence on the direction of the court currently, uh, which put which which really puts more pressure on President Biden to make just the right pick at this time in history. You know, I actually think there's less uh,
0: pressure on Biden at this point. There's certainly political pressure. He really does want to get a win. But I think there's actually less pressure because no one thinks that this pick is going to change the direction of the court. This is going to remain a 6-3 conservative court regardless of who Biden picks. Uh, This is not like when we had really a movement from a, you know, four to five liberal, four to five conservative court Uh, you know, into the other direction, we're not going to change the overall direction of the court. I mean, whoever gets nominated, whoever gets on the Supreme Court from this Biden pick is going to be writing a lot of dissents more than anything else. And so we're not changing the direction, but this is setting the groundwork for trying to get Democrats to actually take back the court, you know, in 20 or 30 years. So we are playing very much the long game here. This is not something that's going to happen or matter right now, but putting in someone who is very young, could help to change the direction a long time from now.
2: All right. So you're saying it could take 20 or 30 years, the long
0: game. I think 20 or 30 years is actually a conservative estimate. So if we take a look at someone like Judge Kavanaugh, no one thinks Judge Kavanaugh is going to be retiring in the next 20 or 30 years. He's going, to retire in, he's going to be retiring somewhere in the 2050s or 2060s. He's got a long time on the bench. And many of the conservatives on the court, on the whole, are relatively younger. And since you've got a lot of relatively younger judges, well, they're going to stick around for a long time. They're going to preserve that conservative majority for a long time.
2: Has the Supreme Court ever had a makeup like this? where the conservative majority has had this much influence on the decisions coming out of the court? I uh, Certainly. If we go back to the start of the New
0: Deal, we had a conservative Supreme Court that struck down basically everything FDR wanted to do under the New Deal. So this is a very activist Supreme Court, a Supreme Court that's very skeptical of federal power, and it took a lot to change the mind of that Supreme Court and get them to agree to let President Roosevelt move forth what he wanted to do. This idea, really, of having these justices that uh, are politically active and partisan is something that is very new, though. Up until the 1980s, really, we didn't have a lot of controversy over Supreme Court picks, except for some isolated examples under the Nixon administration, for instance. we The Supreme Court nominations were generally agreed upon and were generally moved through with large majorities. I mean, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was supported by a bunch of Republicans because these, these hearings weren't very partisan. The difference we have now is that the legislative branch of government is basically a gridlock. There is very little that gets done through the legislative branch. So that means that all the power to get things done moves over to the executive branch and the judicial branch. So the judicial branch has outsized power. So we have a lot of these cases about about the Voting Rights Act and the Supreme Court overturning parts of the Voting Rights Act. Now, that's a huge issue. But it's only a huge issue because Congress can't get its act together and actually pass amendments to the Voting Rights Act that would pass muster with the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is important because Congress is unwilling or unable to act on these matters. And so the power goes over to them. So the Supreme Court simply didn't matter as much and wasn't quite
2: as partisan. These picks didn't matter as much until pretty recently. Dan Dan Casino, professor of government and law at Fairleigh Dickinson University, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Let's continue our conversation about the Supreme Court and something called the shadow docket. There's a recent Supreme Court decision that many believe will perpetuate a system that denies people of color political power. In the state of Alabama, a lower court recently struck down the state's redistricting plan. But then the justices on the Supreme Court froze the lower court ruling by a vote of five to four. Critics of the ruling say that the Supreme Court froze this injunction on the so-called shadow docket without an explanation. Joining us now to talk about this ruling and the shadow docket is legendary Loyola Marymount law professor Lori Levinson. Lori, thanks for being with us.
3: Jeff, it's great to be with you.
2: All right. So how would you explain this Supreme Court decision and its implications?
3: Well, for that particular decision, I would describe it as very troubling. And it's part of what's been going on, this so-called shadow docket with the Supreme Court. For those who are not familiar with it, ordinarily when a case goes up to the Supreme Court, there's full briefing, there's argument, the public can see what's going on. But since the Trump administration, there's been a big change. In the 15 years prior to Trump, There were only eight cases that went up on sort of these emergency petitions to the Supreme Court, where the Supreme Court could issue an order without having full argument, without even having opinions, and they could do so to stop lower court orders. When Trump came in, it went from eight cases in the prior 15 years to 41 cases During the Trump administration. And we've seen this in all sorts of hot button issues, the most recent being, as you described, the Alabama case. I mean, what your listeners should appreciate is that the lower court was actually three judges, two of whom had been appointed by Trump. And those three judges took a look at what happened in Alabama, where the Republican legislature redistricted their map such that Black citizens in Alabama would not have a chance at getting fair representation. Even though they're about 27% of the population, they could only win one out of the six or seven districts in Alabama for the congressional elections. So the lower court had said, redraw it. And there was an emergency petition on the shadow docket to the Supreme Court who came out with a 5-4 decision, the five conservatives overturning the lower court and saying, nope, it's too close to the election, you can't have them uh, redo this, and the Republican map stays in place.
2: You're the expert, obviously, but it, it sounds to me like this decision by the Supreme Court now sets a precedent nationwide?
3: Well, it does in many ways. It's very disturbing. Because if this holds, and it looks like this is what the Supreme Court's going to do, what is going to happen in any of these states that are controlled by one party that unfairly draws the line? And they try to go to court, and they try to get it redistricted, but we are nine months out, or at the time it was, from an election, and they say, oh, uh, it's too close. The problem with that theory is, and I think the original map only took about a week or two to draw. So it's unclear why it's too close to require fire redistricting. And if you don't have the right maps for people to vote in, then you can predict how these elections are going to come out. And by the time it happens, it's too late to complain.
2: All right. So about this Supreme Court decision, let's go back to this shadow docket. Is this something that Chief Justice John Roberts decides or does do the... Uh, justices take a vote, how do they decide when or if they're going to use the shadow docket?
3: Well, that in itself is a bit in the shadow. And I think that's what concerns people, because we don't necessarily see how they're voting on whether to take these cases. You know, the shadow docket was something that was in place for many years to deal with last minute death penalty uh, appeals. And then you would see which justices said we should weigh in or not. Here we have justices basically just granting these injunctions on this latest one. Roberts, actually, who has not been a huge fan of voting rights, even he said this shouldn't have been handled procedurally the way it was. And Elena Kagan really made a strong point of this. By using this method, these emergency appeals, you're not only not showing the public what's going on behind the scenes in the Supreme Court but you're not even using the same standards that are usually used in cases.
2: And we know according to the latest public approval polling the Supreme Court's numbers are about as high as Congress, you know. And, and so there is a sense it seems to me among the public that the Supreme Court is another branch of government that has become politicized.
3: Well, I do think that this uh, shadow docket and, and these rulings and And it's not just the election cases. Don't forget they did this in the Texas anti-abortion case. They've also done it in the cases involving COVID. Um, This has played out where it's a five to four or six to three by political uh, affiliation. And so it's not totally unreasonable for the public to look at the Supreme Court and say, you know, this is seems to be very political because it's different not just in how they're voting, but how they're even getting the cases up to the Supreme Court.
2: We know that there are some pretty important abortion-related cases that are working their way through the lower court system to the Supreme Court. Is it possible that the Supreme Court could hear uh, this case in Mississippi, uh, or something pertaining to Roe v Wade by using the shadow docket.
3: Well, the Mississippi case is a case that is the full merit decision, but we're not going to have a ruling on that until likely May or June by the Supreme Court. Meanwhile, you have states doing what Texas did, which put in decisions that are clearly unconstitutional under Roe v Wade. And the Supreme Court by using the shadow docket, has allowed those unconstitutional state decisions to stay in place, in essence, overruling Roe v. Wade before they even decide the Mississippi case.
2: With the shadow docket and some of the other Supreme Court decisions, what is your sense about this court and the direction that it is heading in? We just spoke with someone who believes that, you know, for uh, President Biden's pick to, to really... Well, uh, we talked to Dan Casino of Fairleigh Dickinson University, who 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 sees, uh, you know, perhaps decades before the makeup of the court can change enough, where the more progressive justices on the court will have any sort of real uh, influence on the court as a whole. Uh, do you agree that it could take decades for this? change to occur for those, especially uh, uh, for those who are more progressive, who are more liberal, who, who want to see a court go in the direction that, um, well, in a different direction that is going now.
3: Yeah, I, I, I actually do agree. And I wouldn't even say go in a, quote, progressive direction. I would just say be more balanced. We have an extremely hard to the right Supreme Court right now and the prior administrations tactically appointed very young justices who are going to be there for decades and because they have life tenure that means it's unlikely that Biden or if you have another Democrat is going to replace them so even though they don't necessarily reflect I think the public they have on their voting block a very strong conservative bent and unless there are dramatic changes in the Supreme Court, and that's why I think you hear people talking about increasing the size of the court or packing the court, there's very little that's going to change that.
2: And for the court as a whole, um, it you know, if, uh, it, you know, I brought up the uh, public approval ratings. If, if you have a court system that Uh, isn't as balanced as you would like to see. What does that mean for the Supreme Court as an institution?
3: Well, I think Chief Justice Roberts, who is someone he's very dedicated to the institution, even though he was appointed as a conservative justice, is concerned that the court will lose its credibility. And in fact, um, he voted on the Alabama case against his fellow conservative justices. Uh, the big question here is, what credibility will the court have, and that's important for the public. You know, I think that we have enough of a fight going on, and elections with the electric, uh, the uh, uh, with the presidency, and then with the Congress. People, since Marbury versus Madison, have been hoping that the court will just reflect what would be fair under the law.
2: Okay, we're going to switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about well, not a little bit, a lot. Let's talk about Sarah Palin and her libel suit against the New York Times. A unanimous verdict uh, was uh, found that there was insufficient evidence to prove that the newspaper had defamed her. Uh, This is a case that uh, revolved around a 2017 editorial. That incorrectly connected the former vice presidential candidate's political action committee to a 2011 shooting in Arizona that uh, severely wounded uh, Congresswoman Gabby Giffords of Arizona and left six others dead. So what do you think of this lawsuit and the fact that the. Jury ruled against
3: well, uh, Pim- on the merits of this lawsuit, you know, both the jury and the judge, in fact, the judge, even before the jury came out, said he was going to dismiss the case., uh, but both the jury and the judge found that this did not meet the legal standards for defamation when you go after a public figure. Now, Sarah Palin is a very public figure. She was being, you know, running for vice president. And in that situation, under a prior case called New York Times versus Sullivan, it's not enough to show that the New York Times made a mistake. You have to show they acted with malice, that they intentionally or with gross recklessness uh, uh, used these false statements. And given the facts in this case where they admitted they made a mistake, they fixed it, the next day, it's not unreasonable for the jury to say it was a mistake, but it didn't meet those legal standards. Now, I think part of what's going on in Sarah Palin even bringing this case is that there's been a movement to attack the New York Times versus Sullivan standard. Uh, Justice uh, Thomas has said that that should be reconsidered. And that's almost an attack on the media, And in some ways, the First Amendment. That's a case that came in so that the media didn't feel like they would be sued every time they were reporting on a high visibility person. So uh, Sarah Palin has said she's going to appeal. If she's going to appeal, that's most likely to be the legal issue, because I don't think anyone thought that this jury or this judge on the facts and on the legal standard we've had would rule with her.
2: And we have seen other conservatives go after what they call the mainstream media in other cases. Uh, It it seems to me that that's that's also a a sort of movement that we're seeing there, trying to get money from these uh, more traditional news organizations.
3: Right. I mean, this is a bit frightening. It should be frightening for all of us because it's much along the lines of the unfair media and attacking the media and shutting down certain types of media. And if we think this out, what is that going to leave us with? There's a lot of other type of sources of unreliable information, but if you do think that long-standing institutions like the New York Times or you know, some other major newspaper at least puts the resources in, to try to report the story, uh, they're going to have this cloud hanging over their head. I get it for people who don't like what side sometimes the media takes on editorials, but there's a bigger issue here. In our country, we have really valued the fourth estate. We've always said that one of the protections on our democracy is freedom of the press. And tinkering with that can really raise some questions.
2: Lori Levinson. Thank
3: you. Thank you.
2: I wanted to spend a few minutes talking about America's schools and what's happening with teachers during this ongoing pandemic. We've heard a lot about mass mandates over the last several months, but what about some of the challenges teachers and educators are facing in the classroom with this pandemic? Arthur Jones is one of my colleagues at CBS News. He also has a podcast that focuses on education issues. Arthur, thanks for being with
1: us. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff.
2: All right, so first tell me about your podcast. What do you call it? And tell me about some of the things that you focus on.
1: Of course, thank you so much. So my podcast is Max Out Time with AJ2, which is self-entitled interview-based podcast, which maximizes success stories with everyone from entertainers, entrepreneurs, and now educators. And I'm running a special series that I've been doing since the fall of 2020 called Education Reboot, where we reimagine and explore the COVID-19 classroom. I've spoken with everyone from college students to high school administrators, uh, the 2021 Global Teacher Prize recipient and National Teacher of the Year finalist.
2: All right. So so tell me, give me a specific example of something that stands out to you uh, in looking into what's happening in schools. Is there, is there a, a particular issue uh, around this pandemic that you're hearing over and over again from teachers and educators?
1: Well, we're hearing a lot about these shortages. There's a teacher shortage, there's also a substitute, storage, substitute shortage. Then we look at the bus driver shortage. So when we talk about bus drivers calling out, teachers who are quitting and walking away, and substitutes who are nowhere to be found, it seems as though the education system is under a crisis. And I've been talking with teachers on my podcast and also reporting for cbsnews.com. You know, I've been talking with teachers from Pennsylvania to Utah who are finished. This year, I've spoken with teachers who are walking away. I've talked to teachers who are retiring early. And I've talked to teachers who are trying to stop their colleagues from walking away and retiring early. Also, the National Education Association surveyed more than 3,000 of its members and over half of them believe they would leave teaching earlier than they had planned at the end of this school year. So, you know, that stat is indicative of the heightened burnout we've seen in education and with these teachers over nearly two years.
2: All right, so this this heightened burnout that you're referring to, uh, is it because they're not getting the kind of support that they feel they need from school administrators? Does it have anything to do with some of the harsh reaction from parents Uh, what do you think is at the heart of what uh, is ailing uh, school systems and what is troubling these teachers and causing them to leave the profession?
1: One thing you said that is definitely true is this lack of support. But I think the two main factors that are leading teachers to leave the classroom are behavioral issues from students, actually, and this concept of lack of time. So I'm a producer for CBS Mornings. And in the fall, we looked at a social media trend, a social media trend where there were viral challenges of students who were slapping a teacher, who were vandalizing school property, something called devious licks where they were destroying school property and posting it online. I've had educators tell me about this disruptive behavior over the past several months. I've also had educators tell me One teacher in Colorado who quit in December who said a a student stole her keys to her classroom and there was no disciplinary reaction from the school besides, you know, a call home. So there's been all of these behavioral issues in class and students on their phones too often or walking in the class late, just lackadaisical mindset from students, perhaps because they haven't been in the classroom for several months, But that's what teachers are seeing from the students. Now, on the flip side, educators are tired. We talk about burnout. Why? Because it's this lack of time. They're losing prep time because with a substitute shortage, teachers have to go and sub other classes. They're cutting down on their lunch periods so they can prepare lessons. And so they can make individualized education plans or IEP plans for special students with Uh, special needs and accommodations. So teachers don't have time. They're working at home. They're working overtime and they're being stretched thin. Yeah. I mean, they,
2: you know, they're, they're like the rest of us trying to raise families through this pandemic. But of course they have their day job too, where they're teaching uh, other people's children in the classroom. And as you point out, in some cases, trying to control uh, children who are acting out. Now, you you talked about some of these these instances of children acting out. You know, what you're saying is that this this is more than uh, than typical. In other words, this is more than what
1: we have seen uh, in years before the pandemic. Absolutely, the teachers in Colorado who I've spoken to, Utah who I've spoken to. Chicago and even Virginia, who I've spoken to, mentioned the viral challenges, mentioned the lackadaisical mindset and just lack of respect for teachers, being disrespectful in the classroom. Uh, and I know students are facing so much, You know, students and educators are facing so much in the classrooms right now, but teachers are not standing for it. And like I said before, I've spoken to teachers in Chicago who are like, hey, I have the years to retire, I'm gonna do it now that study that national association that the national education association did recently is indicative of more than half of teachers who are ready to leave and ready to quit but one thing i really want to point out to you jeff is that this burnout is not new you know some of the behavioral challenges some of this lost time is new because of shortages in other areas but the burnout is not teachers have been striking protesting for better wages and fair conditions for decades so let me reiterate this what teachers are telling me is that this pandemic has not forced all of these problems they say it has exacerbated the existing challenges that's
2: really interesting and so what are teachers unions doing in response to these concerns Uh, among their union members, the teachers.
1: Teachers in Indiana are protesting. Their unions are out there protesting. We have seen student protests everywhere from the nation's capital to Oakland, California. Teachers and students are boycotting. They're protesting. They're walking out of school. And mind you, it's the wintertime. It's not summer. It's not spring. These are not the best conditions to be outside. We are still under a global health crisis, but they're fed up. I wrote a report about students who are demanding change in D.C. a few weeks ago um, for cbsnews.com, and they're demanding changes like more testing. They want it to be safer in schools, so they walked out of school. We covered it, but it needs to be covered more. This issue is underreported. We have, in Minnesota, they're going over policies and whether or not the union will strike for the first time in 50 years. So keep an eye out for these teacher strikes, these walkouts, because the boycotting is going to continue to happen if teachers and students aren't having their voices heard.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, that's a very good point. And we will keep an eye out because... Uh, this is an important issue. We all have kids who have been influenced by their teachers. Um, but, you know, as I said at the outset of this program, there is so much going on right now. And there are so many important issues that are getting lost in the pandemic coverage, or, you know, whether it's uh, coverage about the Supreme Court or about what's happening in Ukraine, there's so much going on in our communities that. I think, doesn't get enough attention. And certainly uh, our schools and our teachers could could uh, benefit from more coverage. It is so important for uh, all of these communities across the country. Arthur Jones, thank you. Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate it. That is it for this week's America Change Forever. You can download previous episodes wherever you download your podcast. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at Jeff Pegues CBS, where you can send program ideas. What do you want us to look into? And follow me on Instagram at JeffBegays6. My thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. I'm Jeff Begays, and that is how America Changed Forever.